0: once again, and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the show where I talk to developers, programmers, and coders of all types who are in business for themselves, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are. So if you're a programmer who wants to get into business, or if maybe you're already in business and you want to see where to go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode 10 with Natter Dabbit. My guest today is Natter Dabitt. Natter is a web and mobile developer currently working as a developer advocate at Amazon Web Services. He's also the founder of React Native Training, the author of React Native in Action, the creator of React Native Elements, and an aspiring futurist. When he's not programming, he's probably traveling, spending time with his family, or reading. Natter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you put out a tweet. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that I saw, which linked to an article that I guess you wrote last year. It looks like March of last year, and the article is called "The Prosperous Software Consultant," um, and it's a great article. I, I really enjoyed reading this uh, piece that you put out, and I, I figured maybe what we could do is talk about some of the things that you wrote about in it, uh, particularly around you know if you want to get into consulting as a software developer, some of the things you might want to do, some of the things you might uh, want to stay away from. But before we get to that, maybe uh, tell me a little bit and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, Um, We'll go more into that article, but it's funny because I wrote that article like over a year ago, and it just now really started making the rounds and getting a lot of views. But yeah, so just like you mentioned, uh, I work in DevRel at AWS. I've been here for about a year and five months. I started in January of 2018. So um, before that, I was doing consulting full-time for almost two years. And then prior to that, I was working full-time as a software engineer, but also doing a little bit of consulting on the side. So um, over the past you know 5 or so years i've i've kind of like dabbled in consulting some full time some part time and um and then over the course of that time i've written a couple of books i wrote react native in action i'm currently writing um a, a book called full stack serverless for o'rally publications it'll be pre-released in july and um written a bunch of like blog posts and stuff like that so i like to write
0: Excellent. Yeah, it, it sounds like you do. And um, you know, the 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 stuff that you've written about in this article, um it's of particular interest to me because I've um as a consultant myself, I I've sort of uh, felt some of these same kinds of things that you're talking about. Um, you know, Things like how specialization is is a good strategy when you're uh, starting out as a consultant. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of going back to your consulting days, um, kind of the topic of specialization. So what, uh, what do you mean by that in your article, I guess, to start out with? And why is it a good idea to specialize as a software developer?
1: So when I first started getting or, or trying to get into freelancing or consulting, I, sh- I guess you'd say I wasn't actually doing it because I had zero business. Um, I, I had branded myself as kind of like a know-it-all, do-it-all, like I-can-do-everything type of person. So um, I did design, I did web development, you know, on my website at least. I said I did all these things. Um, I did You know, mobile apps, pretty much anything someone could think of. I I was saying I did it, but I wasn't landing any business at all. I wasn't getting any clients. I'd randomly have someone that would kind of, you know, fall into my lap locally, but it would never be a good client. So um, I just didn't do that well. And I ended up taking a job uh, as a full time software developer and in the meantime while i was working there i did a little bit of research i started uh, reading started listening to a few podcasts uh the podcast in particular that that kind of drove me into that into that realm of specialization is the freelancers podcast on devchat.tv they talk a lot about this and everyone there and all of their guests and like i kept hearing specialization over and over and over and um the idea of specializing and getting into a a niche, um, some type of niche that'll kind of like separate you from everyone else. But at the same time, you're kind of like doing away with being the person that knows everything and can do everything, and you're kind of limiting yourself to the number of clients that you can have because instead of being like a web developer, you're kind of like specializing in maybe mobile app development. For me, with React Native or training with React Native, I know people that are doing like machine learning uh, training or maybe certain types of uh, database optimizations you know but, but that's like the only thing that that they categorize themselves as and that's the only thing that they kind of market themselves as so um, you know I heard I heard a lot about this so um, I started getting I started branding myself as a mobile uh, mobile app developer and at the time it was ionic and it was uh, Cordova and that, and those sorts of things and then when react native came out I kind of pivoted hardcore and went all in on React Native. And that's kind of where most of my business over the past couple of years uh, had come from. So I I kind of like did only React Native development and React Native training came out of that. So I started, um, you know, really only caring about React Native. I I would answer Stack Overflow questions. I would, um, you know, blog about React Native stuff. I created a React Native library I was like, you know, always talking about React Native and uh, put in my LinkedIn profile and in my Twitter profile, React Native, and business just started like coming at me. Uh, more business that I could I could handle. Honestly, I would say I was only able to kind of like convert uh, around twenty percent of the, the business side coming in, and it was a, a good thing. It wasn't like I was missing out on those clients. It was almost like you uh, you start getting to a point where you can. Um, filter through and just take the best of the best. So um, that that strategy seemed to work really well for me specialization. And um, it's kind of what I heard over and over and over and and it definitely works.
0: When you say uh, business started coming in, um, and it sounds like it started to take off sort of exponentially, what what does that look like? Business coming in is that people reaching out to you on LinkedIn um, through other channels? How did how did that take shape?
1: Yeah, it was LinkedIn, it was Twitter. People found my email address. I have a, I had a website up with just my email address listed there. Um, I think the first leads I had that came in that, that actually converted to real paying, like you know, over a hundred dollar an hour type of uh, leads were through Stack Overflow. So I would I would answer. You know, and I did, and I still kind of do uh, answer a ton of questions on on Stack Overflow, and um, people will go on there, I guess, looking for people that know what they're doing, and I guess they they rate people on Stack Overflow based on you know on different categories like React Native, so I was kind of like trending on React Native, so a lot of people found my information there um after after that i did kind of like transfer all my profiles to um to say react native so i i did get quite a a little a, quite a few leads off of linkedin um after about a about a year or so of specializing in react native i created a a company called react native training which was really just kind of at the time just a website um and i had a, a couple of uh, consultants one of them it uh, was almost like a partner he lived in um poland and any leads that came in for the U.S., I would take those. And any leads that came in in Europe, I would like send them his way. And just saying that we were doing the training also got us even more business because people were um, just assume that if you're training people, like you're the best of the best, so um, they'll come for you for training, and then they might even, uh, you know, extend a contract to do, you know, some some hourly consulting or, or something like that. So. So yeah, so business uh, at first would just come in via my personal website and and uh, they would find me through Stack Overflow and stuff.
0: So it sounds like you you used uh, a lot of the tools that we as developers use every day, things like Stack Overflow, things like LinkedIn Twitter, and started to to kind of take in some business uh, through through those channels, which is I think one of probably one of the best ways to do it in the industry that we 're in i mean that 's been my experience anyway I, I think rather than try to put your company name on a billboard or on a a banner ad of some sort, you know, I think the the organic reach like you've done is really the way to go. Um and so is that kind of does that encompass like kind of the the only way that you would get business or were there any other things that you would do uh, aside from those channels?
1: I mean, um definitely blogging brought me a few clients. I had one client in particular that's uh, found a blog post I wrote about Redux and uh, reached out to me and and booked me for a week of training and then I ended up getting a really really uh, like probably one of my best contracts out of it uh, for hourly consulting and then they ended up getting acquired uh, by Google and it was you know all around just a really good experience and they found me from a blog post so um, just pretty much any content that I put out there um, React Native uh, training had a GitHub repo. So we put up like a GitHub org for React Native Training. And then uh, any open source that I would create, I would just put it under the React Native Training GitHub. So when people um, search for a certain type of project, maybe as an example project, I might have that in React Native Training repo. They might find it there. And then I would have information about my company on in the organization GitHub org. Um, React Native Elements is a pretty uh, popular open source uh, UI framework and it's under React Native training right now. We're actually moving that out of React Native training into its own uh, GitHub. But for, uh, for a long time, it's been in, in the React Native training um, org. So a lot of people, you know, go to look at the documentation. And they're like, oh, you know, React Native training, there's a link to our website. So we get traffic. Uh, we got traffic that way.
0: Very nice. You know, so one of the, the things that you, you mentioned, you touched on, is that the amount, the volume of requests for work that were coming in started to be too much for you to handle. And, and I've experienced this myself, um, which is definitely, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's this nice problem that we have, I guess, in the industry that we're in, is that sometimes, you know, the, the amount of work that's coming in is just too much for us to handle. Um, what did you, how, I guess, you know, how did you filter uh, things at that point? How did you pick and choose your clients? And, and turn certain ones down. Did you have any kind of standard, you know, kind of filter that you would apply to to request for work coming in?
1: Well, you know, to be quite honest, I basically optimized for the most amount of money that I could make. Right. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so like if I, if, I have, if I had a really good client that, that I respected and they respected me and I was getting, you know, a decent hourly rate, even if something came in that was a higher paying rate, I might turn it down because you know I'm having a good experience. I don't want to like mess it up even for a little bit of money. but if I did have um, someone that like reached out that was like maybe fifty to a hundred dollars an hour like over what I'm getting in another contract, I might try to to finish off that other contract and move over to this new contract um but but as far as like at the very beginning like when I'm just looking at leads coming in um you can almost kind of like catch on after a while uh, when when you're interacting with clients and see who's serious, who isn't, who is like a, who would, who might be good, who might not be good. And um, you know, and and then the, and then at the time when I did have uh, extra pe- um people reaching out, I might start, you know, referring those people to my friends or people that I thought were, you know, would be good a good fit for them. But yeah, I think as far as like uh, being able to filter out who's good and who's bad, I think you kind of just acquire like uh, you know, uh, some type of, I don't know, radar for like people that are going to like waste your time or be good clients or or not good clients.
0: Yeah. You definitely start to, excuse me, at least I, I have started to develop a bit of a sense for that. I'm curious, actually, what, what are some of the, what are some of the, uh, things that tip you off when you have these interactions that maybe the client isn't totally serious, or maybe it's a bit of a, a waste of your time. I mean, there's certain, there's certain indicators I think that I've, uh, seen myself. And, you know, there's, there, there are ones like if they, if they have some kind of like ideation about a project that they want to do, but they don't really have a good sense of the reality of what it takes to, you know, create a software product or maybe, you know, maybe if it's, I, I talked to, um, like for example, at the, the co working space that I, I work at a lot of people that, uh, have grand visions for perhaps an app to, to back their business, their, you know, whatever it is, a service-based business. Uh, but they don't realize that but at that point, if they're you know taking on custom software, really they're turning into a software company, and they're going to inherit all of the, the stuff that comes with that. So I'm I'm curious about maybe some of the indicators that you would have uh, that other people who are in a position that you uh, were in might might be able to uh, to use as filters or or at least have have their their hats tipped off.
1: Yeah, so definitely, if it's a technology company already or a software company already, that is a, a good a good thing for for you to be interacting with. So it's so if the company reaching out already has employed software developers or software engineers, that's always a good thing. Um, if it's like a local business that you know may not realize what they're getting themselves into that's kind of like a tip that it might not be a good client and if you don't know uh, a good a good thing to do is just to respond with your your rate you know um you know if, if your rate is like whatever 150 bucks an hour just go ahead and say that up front a lot of times that will just scare away people that are not serious um people looking to kind of waste your time or whatever um, also, a lot of times in the wording, like if, if someone kind of knows what they're asking for, they'll 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 put it in the in the email, or, or you'll be able to get it out of them within one or two interactions. Um, and, and usually, you want to go with someone that kind of knows what they're looking for, and you don't want to be the one kind kind of trying to guide them into what they want because then. They end up a lot of times you end up getting in a situation where they don't really know what they want and what you when you're you're building what they think they want, but it's not actually what they want. And then they come back with, you know, and you just basically uh, the more experienced of a person that you can deal with, the better. I think that's like a, a good general rule.
0: Yeah, I, I would definitely echo that. I, that's been my experience as well. Um You know, I'd love to chat about uh, something that was in your article around flat rate pricing because we've talked thus far about how, you know, there were certain hourly rates that you might have uh, billed for. There were certain um, price points that maybe the client was offering or you were asking for. Um, But you've got a piece in your article about flat rate pricing and how, you know, a good strategy to increase your overall revenue is to, instead of giving your hourly, give a flat rate that is based on sort of, sort of, a percentage of the value or or maybe it's some metric on the total value that you're going to deliver to the client. So maybe take us through uh, your thoughts around flat rate pricing and maybe expand a little bit there on, on what it is exactly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So flat rate pricing is something that I've aspired to pretty much my entire consulting career. And I aspired to it because of a lot of advice that I've had and, and, and then a couple of good experiences that I had, uh, you know being able to bill flat rate. Um, so I would say, you know, starting off just a, a general overview of what that means is when you're p- dealing with the client, there's really maybe a couple of different ways that you can that you can bill the most uh, well known and, and probably utilized uh, form is is hourly rate. If you're like a freelancer, a software freelancer, then there's flat rate and then there's uh, retainer. And I would say the retainer, you could kind of combine flat rate and hourly, and then hourly is just billing per hour. And then flat rate is just billing for the actual job. So for instance, if you're, if you're working with a client and they have like an engineering team of like 10 engineers and you're, and you're being brought on as like the 11th engineer, um, flat rate pricing might not, not, might not make sense because you're basically, you know, creating features, you're getting, uh, you know issues you're you're getting uh bug fixes and things like that and you're not really be you're not able to kind of like encapsulate what value you're bringing to the table you're just kind of adding additional uh manpower uh to kind of attack the the issue but with flat rate pricing there are certain you know scenarios where it makes sense for for not only you but but also for the customer so there're two main scenarios that made sense for me. One is if I'm doing a training. So when you're working with uh, people that are, you know, looking for you to come on board and show them how to to kind of get up and running with something. Billing hourly just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because it's actually a lot of work for you that isn't really rolled into the hourly rate because you have to prepare before you get there. You have to take time out of your schedule to fly there. Um, You know, you're, you're, you're spending a lot of extra work that isn't actually on site there. So hourly doesn't really make sense. So for training, I always like to do flat rate. So I might say, uh, look at the number of engineers that we're, we're training, uh, kind of come up with some perceived value that they're going to get out of this. So, for instance, a lot of the engineers that I was training were being moved from native development to React Native, and there are a lot of metrics around um, developing with React Native and how you can get applications built faster and things like that. So I would typically try to like come up with some value that that the um, number of uh, days that I'm training his, their engineers would bring to the table, and I would try to price it based on that value. So, for instance, um, say we did a two-day training with like 20 engineers, and each engineer is getting paid like, say, $300,000 a year. That's kind of including, you know, whatever their benefits and stuff. And say that we increase their efficiency by like 10%. You can, you can put a number on that. And then you can, you could say, Hey, this entire training is going to save you half a million dollars, uh, over the next year. And my rate for delivering this training is like $30,000. If you tried to take $30,000 into an hourly rate over two days, the rate would be very high. But when you put a flat rate price on it in that situation, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, the other scenario that works pretty well is if you're building a, entire application, a full-stack application end-to-end, and you are going to be the only one working on that, or maybe you're going to be outsourcing some of the work, but you're controlling the entire project. That also makes a lot of sense because um, sometimes you don't really know the exact number of hours that that you're going to be working on something. So, you know, uh, trying to give someone an estimate for an an X number of hours sometimes doesn't work out. You end up going over. So what I would like to do would would be to look at the number of hours I estimated. I I would normally double that. And then I would apply my hourly rate Rate to that, and maybe bump it up a little bit even more because, you know, th- things always come up and there's always a few things that people come back and they want, you know, things done. So I usually really estimate on the high end. So I'll say for this app, you know, it's I'm thinking it's going to take me 100 hours. So I might bill them like my hourly rate uh, times 220 hours. So it'd be more than 100%. But at the end of the day i probably work more than 100 hours on this uh on this application and then i'm not actually giving them an hourly rate i'm just giving them an end of the uh, end of the day figure so $50,000 that's you know everything is done it actually makes the conversation pretty easy because they can they can then take that amount and they can like take it to their their board or to their accounting team or maybe they they're making the decision themselves it's pretty easy to uh, kind of say yes or no to a flat rate amount Um, And then there's another way around flat rate would be around if you're bringing a feature to this application, that's going to save them a certain amount of money. Um, If you're building in some type of e-commerce feature to their app, that's going to make them say half a million dollars a year. You can kind of price based on the amount of money that they're going to make. And it also makes it, it it helps you make a lot more money and it also helps them understand the value that you're bringing to the table. So maybe and if you build them hourly it would only cost uh like 15,000 but maybe you can say hey we're making you a half a million dollars it'll cost me 50,000 it'll cost you 50,000 for me to deliver this feature it's a win-win situation you're you're making a little bit more money um maybe you can build in some uh, additional hours for them to like you know improve things or, or nitpick or whatever and uh, but but at the end of the day uh you can actually make more money just doing that
0: yeah i really like that approach Have you found any resistance to coming to the client with a flat rate offer? I mean, some of the clients that I do work for, I've done, I've done both. I've, I've offered a flat rate and I've offered hourly. Um, you know, oftentimes I'm working within sort of the, sometimes, sometimes it comes down to what the client requires, whether it's, you know, because they have to take it to their board and their board wants to see an hourly rate or whatnot. I found uh, quite often it's the, the, more startup type companies that want to see an hourly rate maybe just because they don't have a good benchmark to determine you know whether uh, the, the flat rate that is proposed to fulfill some sort of value, they don't have a good benchmark to compare that against, perhaps. So they want to you know, just see the hourly. Have you found any resistance to the flat rate approach? Because I definitely like that approach better than hourly for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, especially because, you know, I think as we all do, we tend to underestimate the amount of effort that it's going to take for for a project.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just <laughs> depends on the client. I have had a couple of times when it didn't work out. Um, but, but most of the time, you know, you can kind of like, when you're, when you're getting the estimate done or when they're telling you the the prerequisites, when they're telling you about the idea, you can kind of gauge whether or not it, it's a good fit. And usually if it's a good fit for you, it might be a good fit for them. So, um, you know, if you get any pushback, you know, then they might just be so used to doing hourly that they're just not going to be, you know, comfortable in, in any other way. Um, so, so yeah, there'll be times when it doesn't work out. And I think, uh, more times than not, hourly pricing is going to be, you know, where you make most of your money as a consultant, unless you're doing just a ton of training. Um, but, but I, I would say, uh, always kind of like be on the lookout for those opportunities when you can do value-based or, or flat rate pricing, because you end up, uh, making more money basically. And also I think, I think it's a better experience on the client as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I'd love to hear your take on uh, what you prefer between... The projects that are, <clears throat> excuse me, you sort of leading them, uh, you taking on you know the full stack development or piecing other you know certain portions of it out to to subcontractors, versus the staff augmentation type of projects. And and for those who aren't um, familiar with staff staff augmentation is basically where a company needs uh, to up their developer uh, count and then so they want to bring in a contractor to uh, to help fulfill that. And so you're you're working alongside an existing team. Um, what have you? found to be preferable uh, in your consulting work.
1: Okay, preferable preferable
0: between um can you re- can you re- rephrase the question? I guess sure. Yeah, um, I guess what what do you like better? Is it the um, is it the more greenfield sort of like um, kind of full stack projects that you would uh, you would be on just yourself uh, or with maybe some subcontractors, or is it the staff augmentation type of projects, the ones where you're coming in uh, to sit alongside an existing team? Um, you know, because I I've done both myself, and I tend to prefer the ones where I'm leading the charge in terms of developments um you know building something that's oftentimes it's brand new versus the kinds of contracts I've done where I've come in to, to augment an existing staff base uh just curious about what you prefer
1: got you got you so yeah i, th- I think it depends you know um Typically, I make more money when I'm in charge and I'm able to kind of do a control the project, and it's usually um, a, fit, a better fit again for that value-based pricing. But honestly, I really like working alongside teams better, even though I'm usually making a little less money. I think it's less headache for me, and it's also uh, a circumstance where I'm learning a lot more. And I and I always value you know learning. And of course, you're going to learn either way. You're probably going to learn when you're the one, you know, building it from scratch. But a lot of times when you're working with people that are um, that you haven't worked with before. They're going to be using tools. They're going to be uh, building in different ways that you may have not experienced. So I don't know. I, I like both, but I would say, um, you know, just for the simple fact that it's usually a little less headache if I'm working alongside another team. I, I would prefer that, unless I'm like really uh, needing extra money or something like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so you've got a lot of different areas to your business, right? You've got consulting, you've got, uh, you've got the, you're, you're authoring books, you're, you're doing training. Um, what What is it that uh, business-wise kind of consumes most of your time? I guess taking into account the fact, too, that you're working at AWS, which I, I'd love to hear about, too, maybe the, um, you know, the decision to go work for AWS and, and and not for yourself full-time, but just curious also about, like, what, what is it that, you know, for your business as it still exists today, what, what is it that that takes up most of your time or that you have most of your focus on?
1: Yes. So um, when I was doing trainings full time, most of my time was was caught up basically putting together training material, really, because most of the clients that I was working with were different and they'd have different concerns, different needs. So I wasn't able to just kind of take a single boilerplate training and then apply it to all of my clients. Every client that I talked to had different concerns. They might have a special Back end that they're interacting with, and they need to like have a certain um, API layer that, that works with their back end, or maybe they're using some um, state management library that I haven't worked with before. Um, so basically, when I was doing trainings, a lot of my time was getting training material together. Um, and I would say now that I'm not doing most of the trainings for, for React Native training anymore, most of my time is caught up uh, interacting actually on social media and, and with email and things like that because. Um, my role now is a developer advocate, so I'm interacting and uh, doing a lot of events. I'm interacting with a lot of customers and, and developers. So I get you know dozens of and dozens and dozens of messages just on Twitter. And then I have my emails, and I'm on a couple of Slack channels. And then we have an internal Amazon Chom um, that is kind of like a Slack within Amazon. And pretty much anyone within Amazon can kind of reach out to you. So I get a lot of people that... Are interested in stuff around uh, React Native and GraphQL that they they reach out to me there. So I would say yeah, I spend most of my time these days talking to people, communicating.
0: <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Okay. Do you have uh, so React Native training? Do you do you have other trainers that you'll send out to do um, do trainings? Yeah. So we
1: we still take business. We still take clients, and we uh, we pretty much outsource. or I pretty much outsource uh, everything. So um, we have a couple of trainers. That are that act is basically just contractors, and um, they're specialists in React Native, just like I am, and they uh are located in different parts of the world. so if we have someone that is in Asia or in Europe or in uh, North America, we usually have a couple of people that would uh try to work out the schedule to
0: work with them okay excellent so it's interesting I I mean obviously it sounds like working for AWS they they are cool with you know stuff that you're gonna do on the side um, I I was interested to learn a while ago that if you work for a place like Google or Facebook I, I think this is the case where they don't actually allow you to do outside business activity so if you are a developer that's working there and you want to like even just create a course um, apparently it's it's it does not fly with them for you to put up a course for sale um, but it sounds like with, with Amazon, with AWS, that's, that's not the case. You're kind of, uh, it sounds like you're even supported doing uh, the training stuff on the side.
1: Well, they, they basically won't, um, us as de- like, at least in my role, I think my role is a lot different than uh, many other roles. You know, as a developer advocate, we're, we're tasked with, you know, being very engaged with the community. Um, React Native training, I don't really spend time that much anymore actually doing a lot of work with React Native training. So it really doesn't take up a, a whole lot of my time. But as far as like you mentioned courses and stuff like that, yeah, we're encouraged to do courses, actually. So like we're uh, we're encouraged to create content to help developers uh, get get up and running. With uh, Not only with AWS services, but also with just general tech uh, that we're specialized in. So if I wanted to do a, qu- a course and I have just on React, has nothing to do with AWS, I can actually do that partly on uh, my time as, an, as uh, part of my regular day. So, yeah, I don't know how uh, other companies work, and I don't even know how many other roles within AWS work. It might be uh, much different than mine as a developer advocate. I think as a developer advocate, it's kind of unique in the sense that we are – given a couple of hours really out of our day each day to kind of like do whatever we want that as long as it's like a positive impact on the community doesn't have to again resonate directly to aws sales or anything like that it's just us helping the community out in general advocating on behalf of developers and helping them out do whatever it is that they're trying to do
0: yeah yeah absolutely um i'd love to shift and talk about the uh, the process that you go through to, uh, or that you have gone through, to author some of these um, these books that you've got. Um, so you've got uh, <clears throat> you've got. React Native in Action. Sorry, I was just looking for the name. React yeah. Native in Action. Uh, is that who's that through Manning? Is that that's through Manning? Yeah, Manning. Right. Okay. So, talk to me a little bit about what that's all about, because um, I think there. You know, I I've certainly um, had inquiries from uh, Manning and some other publishers uh, to write books on specific topics on things that I'm I'm more uh, versed in, and so. What what is that like? What What's the process like? And, and uh, I guess, you know, tell us about maybe how it works out for royalties or revenues after you've published uh, the book and uh, give us your experience there.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think the conversation even goes back further than that. Like, why would someone even want to write a book in this day and age of like yeah. tutorials online and the Internet and things like that? Um, like a lot of people don't even read books anymore, especially on tech that changes this fast. So like, yeah. So taking a step even that further back, I guess you could say is, um, the reason that I chose to write a book and I've actually talked to a bunch of other people too about this that have written books or have decided not to write books because made just not make sense for them is, uh, you're not like really writing the book these days to get the actual money. Like I would say maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, maybe you were writing the book and the the main reason you were doing it, and possibly could have been, just because you're looking to like make a little extra money. But now, um, you know, as software engineers, we're much more in demand. The money that you would have made consulting would be more money than you're ever going to make spending that time writing a book. So what is you know what's the point of doing it? <laughs> um, so you do get a little bit of money. So that that is a part of it. Um, but you also kind of submit yourself as an expertise uh, expert or having expertise in whatever you're writing about and that ends up being uh, you're able to charge more per hour later on you're able to charge more uh, or to to ask for more and at your job really so when you get if you get offers and they know you've like written a book they just assume you're an expert you can typically ask for more money like um, as your salary and this is not just, this is definitely something I've actually seen in action with other people and stuff too. So that's kind of like why you might want to write the book. Also, if you like to write and you like to share stuff and, you know, you want to be known in the community or someone as an expert in that and whatever you're writing about. Um, but yeah, as far as the process goes, so, you know, you, 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 you go through the thought of like what I just talked about, like, do you want to do that? If you do, um, you end up trying to contact usually some publisher. So you can either uh, find someone that that uh, has written a book before. They maybe can give you an introduction. Um, you might even be able to go to LinkedIn and just look for someone that is called an acquisition editor. An acquisition editor for packed publications, for Manning or for O'Reilly, can usually get you in touch with the person that you need to talk to. So maybe just reach out to them on LinkedIn, and they'll then ask you to um, you know tell them tell them about the book in an email or in a phone conversation. If they think it's a good idea, then they'll move you to the next step which is a formal proposal so they'll typically have a proposal template that they'll email you and you fill out this proposal template it's actually pretty in-depth thing usually 20 to 30 pages of information about yourself about what the table of contents looks like you know why you want to write the book who's the target audience of the book are there any competing books and what books are out there that are competing if so and then how is yours going to be different so you fill out all this information Um, Then that proposal probably goes back and forth between you and a couple of people a couple of times, gets polished up, and then they send that proposal to someone in the company that then stamps a yes or no uh, approval on it. Um, If that book then gets approved, then you get taken to the next step where you get – paired up with someone in the company that is your uh, editor. And then the editor and you work together to kind of write the book. And typically, they'll uh, after the approval gets done, you sign a contract. They tell you how much you're going to make. And uh, these days, books are sold physically and digitally. So you'll get different revenue sharing digitally versus physically. You'll make more for the digital books and less for the physical books. So you'll typically, uh, for Manning and O'Reilly, they'll, they'll ship both. They'll ship digital and physical, and you know as they sell, you'll get a percentage of each. Um, And then before you even ship, they'll usually write you a check as um, as kind of like a deposit to kind of like get you going, just uh, an upfront payment. I forgot the name of the payment, like you know what that's called, but they'll basically forward you like you know anywhere between five and ten thousand bucks or something like that, and um, they'll give you that. And then uh, as you start selling books, they'll take. Um, whatever profit that they've already paid you out of that. And then after you pass over that threshold, you'll start getting checks as royalties. Um, and then the process looks like they'll give you basically a couple of deadlines. So I think the first deadline is like a couple of chapters. The second deadline is like the first half of the book. Uh, the sec- the third deadline would be three quarters of the book. And the fourth deadline would be the final book. You finish the book. After the book is done, you go through uh, a, a pretty serious round of of technical and uh, reviews and editing and things like that and that usually takes another 2 to 3 months and then after those 2 to 3 months go by you've you've edited your book a million times at this point and then the book uh, gets printed and uh, that's about it and then and then uh, if the book gets outdated within the first couple of years you might write a version 2 or a version 3
0: gotcha okay and so you know, one thing I'm curious about here is as you know, people of the internet age, we we have the option of uh self-publishing now, which is quite popular. Uh that's something that I've done myself uh, for my uh, my first uh, book is I, I self-published it um and, and was happy with the results with that. Did you give any thought to doing the self-published route versus the publisher route? And and what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think self-publishing is definitely a good option these days especially and um I think it just kind of depends on you know where you are in your career and and how you feel like approaching it because uh, you know certainly depending on how many uh how many people know you and how big your following is on Twitter and how how well you're known a self-published book could be the could be the the best route. I think when I first wrote React Native in Action, I had less than maybe a thousand Twitter followers. I wasn't very well known in the community yet, and I looked at signing with a well-known publisher like Manning as a way to kind of like cement my you know expertise. And I'm not just someone out here publishing a book that no one's heard of. I think as you become like more well-known and people like trust who you are I think self-publishing would be at least in my opinion the route to go once you've already kind of like made a name for yourself Um, but if you if you're if you're kind of like a new new person to the the programming community and you want to like um, give a little bit of clout behind your book, you might go with the publisher just because they can assume when they buy the book that, oh, okay, this book was published through you know O'Reilly or Manning. They 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 must know what they're talking about. But with self-publishing, anyone can go and publish a book. So if you're not already kind of well-known, it might be a, a, a coin flip, whether or not people might buy it because they might not know for sure if you know what you're even talking about. So like I think for me, um, I wrote my first book with O'Reilly My second book, I said, either I'm going to self publish or I'm going to go with O'Reilly. My first book, again, was with Manning. My second book, I was hoping to do O'Reilly. And if if O'Reilly didn't want to do a book with me, I was actually going to self publish. But O'Reilly has been like the type of books that I've read since I was like young. Like, you know, I've always looked up to the O'Reilly publishers. So I was like, how cool would it be to write a book for O'Reilly? So that's kind of why I went with O'Reilly. I'm a a big fan of them and um, pretty pumped up about it. But I would say for future books, they'll probably either be with uh, O'Reilly or self-published. Manning was a great experience, though, also. So if you're looking to write, uh, I would recommend either Manning or O'Reilly.
0: Gotcha. Well, that's great.
1: Or self-publishing. I, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Self-publishing, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I certainly... Didn't have a very large, and I still don't have a very large Twitter following um, today. Uh, when I, and so when I published my my first book, it, it was not um, sizable at all. But what I what I had been concentrating on for a while was building up an email list. So um, you know, creating blog posts, tutorials, and then um, doing some kind of value exchange. So I would give you something for free in exchange for your email, so that I could you know keep in touch with you um, and cultivated and developed kind of relationships. Uh, with people on the list over a period of time. And, and that seems to have been really effective for, uh, my, you know, marketing efforts for this book, uh, getting up to launch was, you know, prior to launch was a whole bunch of like, um, you know, stuff for free, essentially it was, here's a chapter, here's a few video lessons, um, stuff to, I guess, both get people excited, but also, um, to, um, kind of build, you know, build trust with them to, to say, Hey, I've got a lot of great value for you. And, you know, if you're up for it, here's, the complete package if you want to buy it at the end so um you know just uh for those out there who are thinking about self-publishing often uh it's uh, from everything i've seen and from what i've experienced it is best preceded by building a relationship with uh with your audience over time um, so, But but both great routes, you know, self-publishing and uh, going with an established publisher. Um, so one thing that I, I'd love to also chat with you about is uh, this idea of, uh, this is a conversation I've been having a, a lot lately. It's this idea of product businesses versus services businesses in, in terms of uh, the software development world. And so I guess my question for you would be, if you were to get back into business full time at some point, um, would you focus on consulting? uh, if you did, or would you, do you have any interest in going into more of a product business? And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So the product business definitely is very compelling. Um, but I don't know. I just, I just have never felt like I have like an idea that's good enough to sell. I know that's probably not true. And if I really thought about it, I could figure something out, but, um, I think I got into programming because I wanted to build a product. But as I got better, I realized I could be making money for sure. Uh, you know, as a consultant, you know, providing services, and um, I think he, I think it's like a, a trap that you fall into once you start being able to make a lot of money um, consulting. You know, you, you start thinking of your time as having a, a, a price tag on it. So if you're if you're billing like these high rates, like two hundred fifty dollars an hour or more, and you want to spend two hours a day on building your own product. And it might take you 200 hours or something like that to do it. You start pricing that product as fifty thousand dollars. So would I rather have fifty thousand dollars in my account, or would I rather have built this thing that may or may not work? So it's kind of like a gift and a curse to to become you know to get at that level of of making a lot of money. So I don't know what I would do honestly. I would like to I would like to build a product. Um, But every time I think about it, I I, I kind of always go back to service-based, which probably means I'll never like be the next uh, Mark Zuckerberg or something, but but I'll always have like food in my mouth.
0: (laughs) Well, that's true. And I I think for the majority of us, we won't be the next Zucks, Um, but that's okay. Um, You know, it's certainly something that I fall into the trap of as well is, you know, when there's the 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 request from a potential client for work or from an existing client to do more work it's uh the allure of of getting getting um you know a paycheck uh in the near term as opposed to putting in effort over time and and waiting needing to defer that paycheck until later it's it's hard to do uh and so the the allure of of getting immediate uh pay is is definitely there for me as well um but uh i think you know in terms of like product versus service i th- i think one way that we can maybe reframe it is around the flat rate pricing that you talked about because you know there's there's potential there i think and you go into this in your article uh, to um, to generate more revenue that way if you're flat rate pricing uh, and you're pricing based on value um, you know as opposed to kind of maxing out your earning potential over the course of the year if you're just doing hourly um, there's there's greater potential there when you're at a flat rate. Um, I'd love to chat, too, uh, about networking. This is something that's important, uh, I think, that everybody realizes is important. And you go into it in your article about how it's it's been key to to some of your success. What what would you recommend to people who are maybe just starting out, they want to get into consulting or some kind of uh, programming business? um, What's a good way to approach networking? What are some do's and don'ts that you've experienced?
1: Yeah, so there are two types of networking, I would say, like I would categorize them. Uh, one is virtual and one is physical. You know, you can either connect with people online or in person. Um, and I think that it's valuable to kind of have a mixture of both. Um, and the in-person networking for a, a software developer or programmer, I think the best places to kind of start meeting people are, are conferences or meetups. And meetups are pretty inexpensive to go to. Conferences might cost you a little bit of money depending on where you live though. Um, if you live in like any medium-sized to larger city, you should be able to be able to start going to meetups. And uh, meetups are you know, typically free. They have free food and free beer. And it's kind of where you would want to go to start getting your feet wet meeting people in, in the community. And a lot of companies go to meetups to scout people. A lot of people go to meetups to scout um, consultants. And the reason they do that is they can assume that if you're spending your free time away from programming, learning how to program better, then you're probably in the top percentile of, uh, of people that are good at their, at their job. So if you're getting off of work, uh, and then going to learn how to work better, essentially, is what we're doing when we do these sorts of things. They can assume that you like are passionate about what you do, and they they'll typically you know look to hire those type of people. So if you're looking to get a job, that's another good place to go. Or meetups and and conferences are, are the same thing. You know, um, you'll you'll just be bombarded right by people looking to hire you at conferences, and then you'll also meet people within the community that are like the quote unquote influencers. And if you become friends with them. Uh, a lot of times you'll just have more opportunities coming your way through jobs and, and clients and things like that. Um, and then, you know, and then virtually. Um, so you, you, like what you said, you have like an email list going, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, if you, if you're, if you'd like to start contacting people and, and telling them about what you're doing, that's definitely a good approach. Like start an email list uh, on your website or something like that and send them information in their inbox every week, maybe what you've learned that week, or maybe some helpful tip or something like that. Um, but but for me, Twitter seems to have been a very good return on investment for um, for for what I've liked to do. So whenever I have, um, you know, now I have a, quite a few followers, and I'm able to talk about stuff when I have something come out, and I'll get a lot of reach there. Um, also, I follow the the type of people that will retweet other people's you know job opportunities, for example, and you'll see that you'll have uh, you know certain people that tweet out. Um, whenever someone's maybe hiring or someone's looking to hire a consultant and you can kind of like get connected uh, through Twitter with those types of things and then just making friends on Twitter for with people in the tech community you end up just getting, you know, just I think that you just expand your network and then you just have like more and more opportunities come as your network expands I don't think there's like one thing that you can do that's going to like be the one thing you just have to do a lot of things and uh, do them consistently over time and, and that's kind of the key there
0: Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with all that. It's uh, more about consistency over time and less about some kind of, you know, some singular thing you can do that would that would have, you know, kind of an outsized impact. At least that's the way I think to develop meaningful um, kind of relationships and meaningful networking over time. Um, so it might be a good time to start wrapping up one thing that might be great to, uh, to hear from you before we do though, is if, if there's somebody out there who's, uh, you know, wants to get into consulting or, or expand consulting, what's a good way. Cause you, you've worked with some pretty big names in the industry. You've worked with some big companies. Um, what's a good way to, uh, if you, if, you, if somebody wants to, that as their goal to get, to, to a place where they're doing work for big companies, um, some of the big established names. What's a what's a good approach for that? To uh, to get your name out there, to um, you know, get in front of some of these bigger companies.
1: So I've noticed that big companies like to work with people that have already worked with big companies. Okay. <laughs> so like so the question Chicken is, the how egg. do you get that first break? And to me, you either get lucky and get you know someone reach out to you from one of these big companies. Or you can kind of like, you know, take a shortcut and maybe find someone that's already working for these big companies and tell them, hey, you know, like I will do the work that you're used to paying like a shitload of money for and I'll do it for way less. And then you you do that work and then you can legitimately say, hey, one of my clients is like, I don't know, General Motors or whoever it is. So that's one way to do it. You can kind of like hack your way into it by doing that or you can maybe reach out to these companies uh i don't know and and maybe offer them like if you if you see them already working with some people in the industry just reach out to them directly and offer them the same thing at a lower price i think it's uh, i think you just need to like really basically uh, hack your way into getting it done at the, at the beginning by lowering your price in some way, and and at the end end of the day, it's going to pay off. But all you need is that one big client on your on your website or your resume to kind of start attracting other big clients because they assume if you've worked with one of these massive companies, then then you're uh, you're good to go. You're you're a legitimate company. I think. For me, ever since like my first client was Amazon, even though I also work for Amazon now, um, after Amazon, I had a b- bunch of massive companies, but it was like someone turned a faucet on. The second I put Amazon on my website, I started getting just a ton of wow. big clients reach out to me.
0: Excellent. I like that approach. That's, that's very, very good advice. Well, that's probably a good point, uh, a good part there to start wrapping up. Um, is there anything that you would like to promote before we go? Anything you'd like to plug?
1: So, yeah, let me see here. There's a book that I started reading. Let me see if I can find the name of it now. Sure, yeah. Of course, I probably can't because um, it's not a – I usually listen to audiobooks. And I would say um, that's one thing that I would plug if you're interested in in reading is getting uh, an Audible account and uh, listening to audiobooks because, yeah, it's just like a way to kind of like – I know a lot of people do this already, but I'm a big fan of Audible and um, Audible –
0: I actually have a complaint about Audible. I'm wondering if you can take oh, this yeah, back. Oh, what is it? Can you take this up uh, upstairs uh, there at uh, Amazon? <laughs> I, I can so do my best. One thing that drives me crazy is that you can't purchase through the Audible app. You can't actually make yes. purchases. It seems like the most obvious UX <laughs> thing <laughs> that is still not solved. What's what's behind that?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Like I've, I and I have the same complaint. I agree 100%. Um, if I, if I remember correctly, I don't, th- I don't know if this is true or not. So this is just me repeating like just something I heard, but apparently maybe they're doing it just so they can get out of, uh, paying for, uh, in that purchases or something like that. Maybe.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. Cause yeah, there would be some overhead for that, I suppose. Right. Through the, through, uh, yeah, through yeah. So th- th- That's or... kind
1: of what I heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's, but yeah, I agree a hundred percent. It's like, Oh, I want to buy a book. Okay. Let me like. Close multiple app, open Google Chrome, log in, and then buy it and then go back. It's like, doesn't make a lot of sense. This is like 2019, almost 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to look into that just because I, but it's funny that you said that because I'm also (laughs) curious about that. But the book that I started reading is uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. So, um, I was in a cool bookshop. And I don't really buy physical books usually unless they're technical. But I bought this book, and it's not technical. It's it's kind of a you know nonfiction book about. It's almost a futuristic uh, approach to looking at what's going to happen over the next hundred years, uh, and kind of like yeah, it's it's kind of gives you an idea of of what he thinks that uh, all these different parts of of uh, you know the world are going to be and how they're going to be affected by technology. So how is religion, how is uh, politics, how are jobs, all this stuff. And each chapter is like a different like lesson. So, yeah, it's a really good book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and it's written by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, so that's my one plug. And then the other plug might be check out some of the stuff that I'm working on at AWS, namely AWS AppSync. It's just a way to build uh, GraphQL APIs in the cloud, and we're having a lot of success with it, and a lot of people seem to love it. So um, if you're looking for more about it, just Google AWS AppSync. You'll see quite a bit out there.
0: That's great. We'll link all of that up, including your stuff uh, that you've you've authored, um, the article we've talked about, uh, your your training program uh, book, everything like that. That'll be in the show notes, uh, for everyone to check out. Um, so Natter, it's been great talking to you, man. I, have really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you for taking the time today and I will, uh, I'm sure that I'll, I'll catch you soon, maybe at a GraphQL event or at, uh, at something else. So thanks a lot for uh, being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you once again for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. You'll be able to find show notes, including links to all the resources that Nader mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you've got any feedback about the show, if you'd like to suggest a future guest, or if you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can say hi on Twitter at twitter.com slash Also, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you feel so inclined, it would be awesome if you could leave a review and subscribe. And if not, no hard feelings. Until next time, happy hacking.